What scares you the most? Have you ever walked down a street and felt someone's eyes follow you, their stare fixed on the back of your neck? Perhaps you're creeped out by certain foods, the sound of people chewing and crunching. This is Eerie, a new limited series podcast from Brock Media. I'm Anna Bogutskaya, and throughout the next eight episodes, my intention is to creep you out. Every episode, a different writer will tell a brand new story, something strange, unusual, and occasionally grotesque, written especially for this podcast, and designed to scare someone, maybe you, out of their mind. This episode, The Ecology of Fear, is written and performed by Marley Sue and explores the animal kingdom of teenage girls. So listen in and find out about the ecology of fear. He's following me. The rattle of his engine a constant metronome since I reached the dirt road that leads to Shelley Small's house. I am alone. No one walks anywhere now, not since the disappearances. I've never been here before, but Shelley gave me clear directions after biology yesterday, cut through the woods next to Lemon Hill and followed the dirt track to Swan Neck Corner. My feet crunched through the dirt, small bugs scurrying out of the way. I know many breeds of butterflies and I list them in my head, trying to keep my breathing even. Red Admiral. Brimstone. Painted Lady. He's coming closer, catching up with me now. There will be street lamps as soon as I reach Swan Neck Corner. The darkness won't last much longer. I don't turn around, I don't look back. In my periphery I see movement through the trees, something coming towards me. I stop. A small fox appears, her eyes reflecting fluorescent green. She is frozen still, her paw held in the air. We watch each other for a moment, waiting to see who will make the next move. She retreats, melting back into the night, leaving me alone again. Adonis blue, comet blue, ringlet. My arms feel too long, swaying by my side as I attempt to walk normally. I think about running, but some like the chase. My rib cage feels tight, too tight to take a deep breath. His full beams are on me now, a pool of orange in a sea of black. I watch my shadow moving away as his car pulls up beside me, the engine still running. I stop. He rolls down his window and I can smell him, sweat and something chemical curdled on skin. He offers me a lift. He's breathing hard. It's strange how excitement and fear can sound the same. Grey hair street. Wise rod. Black swallowed. <laughs> I'm standing in Shelley Small's living room. I take a deep breath. My pulse slows, and I exhale. I look around, focusing on the details. The room is beige with walls covered in framed pictures of her family. There is a large, modern TV with surround sound, and cabinets that display plates and bowls that are too expensive to eat your dinner on. <laughs> 
Shelley has two best friends, Mel and Ellie. They sit cross-legged on the floor, soft stomachs exposed to flaunt newly pierced belly buttons and legs shaved smooth as bone. Their skin reminds me of a Spanish rib newt, who has smooth skin to help it swim faster and protect itself against predators. If in danger, it can quickly contract its body and force its ribs towards the skin of its back. I stroke my own skin, comforted by this thought. Do you know the story of Davy's daughter? The question interrupts my thoughts and I focus on the girls. Davy the mechanic? Says Shelley. Whose daughter got pregnant and sick there? Says Ellie. Too many lives home from the biology teacher. Giggles Mel. Monarch. Peacock. Comma. I shake my head, trying to concentrate on what they're saying. I join the circle, crossing my legs to match Ellie and Mel. I look down and notice the red marks crisscrossing up my thighs. I pull the hem of my skirt down, hiding them from the girls. There's this thing you can do if you can't get an abortion, says Shelley, unblinking. You light a candle at midnight and burn a lock of your hair and a lock of the father's hair and repeat, I wish you were never born, I wish you were never born, I wish you were never born. The room is silent, waiting. Shelley continues. That's what Davy's daughter did. A few days later, the baby came out all grey and slimy and cold. She didn't know what to do with it, so she put it in a shoebox and buried it in the garden. A few weeks pass, and then one night she's sleeping and she hears this thumping coming from downstairs. She opens her eyes and then she hears, Mommy, I'm at the bottom of the stairs. She thinks she must be dreaming, but the next night when she goes to bed, she hears it again. Mommy, I'm at the top of the stairs. The next day she goes outside and checks the grave. The shoebox is still there, nothing's changed. She decides to cut the baby in half just to be safe. She buries its legs in one part of the garden and its body in another. That night, just as she's falling asleep, she hears a noise coming from her door. Mommy, I'm outside your door. She looks up and sees her door handle turning. She waits, not daring to move. A few minutes later, she hears it again. This time it's coming from under her bed. Then she hears, Mommy, I want my legs back. Ellie and Mal are frozen listening. I dig my nails deep into the thick carpet under me. Shelley continues. The next day, Davy goes to wake his daughter and he finds her sleeping peacefully. He calls out to her, but she doesn't answer. He walks over to her and that's when he notices the blood dripping from the bed. He pulls back the covers and sees her legs have been cut off. My nail snaps against the floor as the girls explode with laughter. I pull down my sleeve to hide my broken nail and laugh too, copying the girls. When hyenas laugh, it's not because they find something funny, it's actually a form of communication to express frustration or fear. I look around at them, trying to understand what they're saying, holding my mouth wide in a smile until my cheeks hurt. A baby can't cough your legs, says Ellie. It can't even hold up its own head, says Mel, let alone a knife. Maybe it wasn't the baby that killed her, says Shelley, stroking an uneven chunk of hair by the nape of her neck. Yesterday after school, I saw Shelley crying in the biology teacher's car. I imagine a little grey baby with no legs growing in her belly. I imagine it thumping its little fist trying to get out of her. 
I want to tell her that if she was a seahorse, she wouldn't need to worry. Female seahorses transfer their eggs to male seahorses, who can then self-fertilize before giving birth. I open my mouth to say this, but Ellie interrupts. I've got a ghost story. Mel rolls her eyes, but Ellie continues. Last year, I went on holiday to Spain and stayed in a villa. It was really cool. There was this big pool outside and I'd swim every day and practice handstands and holding my breath underwater. I got really good. It had three floors. My parents on the bottom floor, living room and kitchen on the middle floor and the top floor all to myself. Well, until my brother joined us. He was meant to be at cadets camp, but he got kicked out for smoking. When he arrived, he said the taxi driver had told him that this place was famously haunted by a demon. He said the only way to protect yourself from the demon was to close your eyes and hold your breath. Otherwise, it would be able to get inside and possess you. I thought he was just trying to scare me, but that night, I woke up to the smell of smoke. I thought maybe something was on fire, but then, when I tried to get up, it felt like something was sitting on my back, holding me down. So I closed my eyes and held my breath until the smell left. The next morning, I told my dad, and he said I was probably just dreaming, but my brother said it was definitely the demon. He said if I breathed it in, it would kill me. On the last night of the holiday, I woke up to the same smell, even stronger this time. Like, my whole room was full of cigarette smoke. I couldn't move, I couldn't scream, so I closed my eyes and held my breath. I held it for three minutes, until finally the smoke left. How did you hold your breath for three minutes? Asks Shelley. I'll show you, says Ellie. She picks up a pillow from the sofa and tells Shelley to lie down. Ellie climbs on top of her. She tells Mel to do the same to me. Just remember, says Ellie, holding the pillow down over Shelley's face. Don't panic, it hurts more if you struggle. Mel copies Ellie and places the pillow over my face. I lie there in the darkness and try not to move. I can feel Mel's body weighing on my ribcage. I think back to the quiet road to Shelley's house. Red Admiral, Brimstone. My mouth stretches against the pillow, searching for air. Mel pushes down hard on my face as I begin to struggle. I hear Ellie giving instructions. Don't fight, or it's your fault if you get hurt. I can feel myself running out of oxygen. Bursts of light pop behind my eyelids, and I see his headlights coming through the darkness towards me. Adonis Blue. I try to squirm out from beneath Mel, but she clamps her thighs tight around me so I can't move. I remember his hands, rough and stained with that chemical smell grabbing hold of my legs. Clouded silver, green veined white, morning clock. I feel the softness of my skin begin to bend around my ribs. Surprised, Mel throws herself down on top of me as my body slithers away from her. She's taller than me and I can feel her whole body pinning me down. My hands reach around in the darkness, searching to push her off. I find her wrists and grab onto them tightly. Although the Spanish rib newt looks smooth and shiny, you really shouldn't touch it. Mel lets go of the pillow suddenly, struggling to pull her wrists free from my grip. I let go of her and knock the pillow off me as I sit up, gasping for air. Shelley and Ellie are sitting up too now, looking over at us. Mel has her back to me. She's staring down at her wrists. The flesh is pink and blistered. Do you have a story? Shelley and Ali ask me in unison. I look at them. They must be able to tell, to smell his skin and how it still lingers on me now. My mouth goes dry as I open it to speak. Ghosts aren't real, says Mel suddenly. If you want a really scary story, I've got one. She turns to tell her story, pulling her sleeves down to cover her wrists. 
Before the disappearances started, every week after dance class, I'd walk home the quick way through the woods. One week, I saw a man standing in the bushes. I thought, what a weirdo, but carried on. The next week, I saw him again. I knew it was the same guy because he was so ginger, like bright red. His big ginger head stuck right out in the trees. As I got near to him, he started walking through the trees towards me. That's when I realized he didn't have any trousers on. It was so weird. I wanted to laugh, but he creeped me out, so I ran. Gross, says Shelley. Have you seen him since? Mel nods her head. A few weeks ago, the news was on and I recognized his face. He was the first to disappear. They jump at the noise. Ellie's brother has arrived early to pick her up. Shelley lets him in, then goes through to the kitchen to put pizzas in the oven. I smell him before I see him. Smoke. He leans against the doorframe, flecks of cigarette ash in his stubble. I watch Ellie as she gathers her things and says her goodbyes. I watch her follow her brother out the door. I watch her get in his car, sitting perfectly still in the front, as if holding her breath. I repeat his number plate over and over in my head, so that I will recognise it on my next walk home. I go to the bathroom. The nail I broke earlier is long and sharp once again, brand new. Crawfish's claws help them defend themselves as well as catch and kill their prey. If broken, they can regenerate them easily. Clever things. I look up and I'm surprised to see myself in the mirror. I trace the outline of my face, searching for signs of similarity to the others. There is a dead leaf tangled in a knot of hair behind my ear. I pull it out and watch it crumble in my hand. I open my mouth wide and inspect my teeth. A thin, clear piece of flesh is lodged in between my lateral incisors. I dig my nails into my gum and grip it in between my fingers. I pull it and it stretches taut out my mouth. It comes free. I hold it up to my eye, peering through the opaque flesh as if it were my own. The cornea is a clear membrane that protects the eyeball. It's so strong only scalpels and razors can cut through it. I drop it back into my mouth and swallow it whole. When I come back into the living room, Mel is prank calling the biology teacher. Grey hair streak. Viceroy. Black swallow tail. The phone rings and rings. Butterflies rank low on the food chain, so they have to develop clever defence mechanisms like patterns on their wings that help them blend in. I watch Mel, memorising the way she chews the skin around her nails. When she reaches his answer machine, she does a funny voice, pretending to be Shelley, saying she doesn't want any more lifts home. She hangs up, then calls again. I cross my arm self-consciously over my body like her, covering my chest like her. The phone rings and rings. I know he won't answer. Pizzas are ready, says Shelley. Mel abandons the phone and dives onto the pizza. I watch the cheese bubbling hot and fresh on the top. It reminds me of the way his hands had blistered when he touched me. Fried and crispy. Mel lifts a piece from the plate, the cheese stretching between her and Shelley's slice. I watch them pull the pieces apart, just like I had pulled his muscle from bone, tendons stringy and elastic. He had tried to fight me off, scratching wildly at my legs that held him down. My ribs had bent backwards, away from his attempts to grab me. I watched Shelley take a bite, and tomato sauce oozes out from under the cheese spilling down her chin onto her shirt. I'd been careful not to spill any of him on me. 
His skin had tasted artificial, stale from too many spray tans, nothing like the milky sweetness of the red-haired man who had cried the whole time. The red-haired man had been my first. He'd surprised me when I came across him waiting in the woods naked. My body had just reacted. Maybe if he hadn't been revealing so much skin, I could have controlled myself better. Shelley pauses, aware of me watching her eat. I smile, delighted to know our similar instincts. In his car, I too had stopped eating when I'd felt the eyes of another on me. It was the fox, the scent of blood drawing her out again. I'd left the car door open for her, listening to her dispose of what little remained, and continued towards Shelley Small's house. Do you want some? Says Shelley. I look down at the pizza. Grease pulls in the folds of the dough, reminding me of how sweat had gathered in the recesses of his skin. I'd wiped his face and his pupils had dilated. He'd made the same expression in biology yesterday. I'd asked him the meaning of the phrase, the ecology of fear, and he leant against my desk. That chemical smell. His pupils growing like drops of ink in water. How strange. How excitement and fear can look the same. Shelley holds out the plate of pizza to me. No thanks. I smile. I've already eaten. Thank you for listening to The Ecology of Fear, written and performed by Marley Sue. You can find more of Marley's work on Instagram at Marley Sue. Eerie is produced and hosted by Anna Bogutskaya, edited by Mike Munzer, with music by Mitch Bain, and our artwork was designed by Mike Lee Graham. Eerie was co-produced by Regina Cameron Pereira for Brock Media, and our executive producers were Sarah Brocklehurst and Nicole Davis. Follow us at We Are Brock Media on Twitter and Instagram for updates on Eerie, Never Told, and other Brock Media podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode of Eerie, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your scary stories.